good singing. You may be seated. Tonight, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter number 1, we're going to look at a couple of verses. I was either going to preach Sunday morning and Brother Turner Sunday night, or he was going to preach Sunday morning and I was going to preach Sunday night. And this has long been what for our missions, particularly our mission Sunday, but in the month of October we've had harvest partners and we've had those that have gone out and done soul winning. I've wanted to preach this so that we are reminded and aware of what our program of reaching the world is all about. When we come as a church, we come many times from very diverse backgrounds. Uh, Some have been raised in churches that knew how to do evangelism since the day they were born. And there's others that have grown up in church and said, well, we just, it was us four and no more. And we showed up Sunday after Sunday. We really didn't know what to do. And I thought it would be good for us to rehearse for the 15 years that we've been a church, the operational process or the way in which we think uh, about world evangelism and our part in it. And so the title of the message is very simple if you have the notes tonight. All part of the plan. There is a plan that God has and that God has established for us to get the gospel out. Um, Edward is right. There is not going to be any historian that sits down and writes a story of Russ Turner or David Hasselflick or of Mike Flick or of any of the other great missionaries that we are able to be joined with in their ministry. But God has. And God will write in the record book of heaven the great endeavors of those men and their wives who've gone overseas to give the gospel out. But can I submit to you that God is also writing a gospel record of how you and I participate in sharing the gospel. And so literally, while there are those that I I said to my boys today at lunch... Brother Russ has always been one of my role models. He, he's been one of my heroes. I, I never really picked sports. I played a lot of sports, and I was decent at sports, but I never picked sports heroes to be my icons or the people that I, I idolized because I, I always saw what their flaws were. Uh, but I've always tried to find, even when I wasn't really walking with the Lord, people who lived a life that was right that I admired. And uh, when he was talking about the striving this morning, I thought a perfect sermon finish would have been if he had taken us to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, talking about those that strive for the mastery. The one who strives for a mastery, he says, and Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 9, is temperate in all things. They do it for an incorruptible crown, but he finishes by saying, we do it, or they do it for a corruptible crown, we do it for an incorruptible crown. We do it for rewards in heaven. And so tonight I want to read, beginning in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and then I want to take us over to to chapter chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4, and then I want to read a finishing thought in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, and then we'll just dive into the message this evening as we look at this plan that God has for reaching the world. Pick up in chapter 1 and verse number 6. The Bible says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord... Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's a loaded question. 
Jesus was ready with the answer, and the answer was, no, I have the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. You are in a part of it. Why would a measly temporal kingdom of Israel be what I'm driving towards? And so he's going to answer them within that context or within that thought. And he says this in verse number seven, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power. What an answer. Leave the things of God up to God. Let Him manage the process. You just engage in His plan. And then He gives the plan. But, here's what you can do. But ye shall receive power, verse 8, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, if you'll go over to chapter 8, a lot happens between chapter 1 and chapter 8. By time, we believe, most of the theologians and Bible historians believe, about a year, maybe a year, 18 months has passed before we come to chapter 8. And so in this intervening time, Christ has ascended. He's going to ascend in verse 11 back there in chapter 1. And the church that is founded upon him is then going to take its first formational step. What is it going to look like? What is it going to do? How is it going to accomplish this plan? Well, in chapter 2, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that power comes with preaching. And in chapter 2, there is prayer that they all do together. In chapter 3, there's personal evangelism that goes on. In chapter 4, persecution begins. In chapter 5, there's a purification process that happens, Ananias and Sapphira being chief among them. God doesn't like hypocrites in his church. In chapter 6, there is a program that is starting to be built. Now there's officers in the church. In chapter 6, we find that there are deacons who are added to those apostles, preachers, pastors who are heading up the church. In chapter 7, you have a wonderful passage of scripture, another preached message. The whole chapter is essentially Stephen preaching to condemn Israel. And we come to chapter eight. See, now you got more than what you were bargaining for. You thought, boy, this is going to be all about missions. I just gave you the first eight chapters of Acts like that. But it's all about a plan that God has for you. It's all about a plan that God has for me. All that they were doing is all that we do. And notice what happens. In chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, go to the uttermost parts. When we come to chapter 8 and verse 1, they haven't yet. The church, by the way, through all the persecution, through all the opposition, through all of the setbacks, the church is probably in Jerusalem, likely on a minimum, on a low end, probably running 15,000 people. If you take the multitudes that are added and the 3,000 souls that are added and beyond those 3,000 souls, there are multitudes of multitudes that are added to them. There's probably 15,000, but more likely it's above 20 to 25,000 people are now Christ followers, those of the way. And yet, where are they? Where were they? Right in Jerusalem. Right there. Now, the gospel or the message of repentance and some other things had certainly spread. And there's a lot of proof. If we wanted to take all the proof from the book of Acts, we could pr provide it for you this evening. Uh, the man Apollos is from Alexandria in northern Egypt and likely heard John the Baptist preach. And he went about preaching repentance and the kingdom. But until Acts 17, when he meets Aquila and Priscilla and has the way of God more perfectly explained to him that Jesus Christ, God's son, has come and died. It is not until then that this man, 
who is a dispersed Jew who knows something about the kingdom, but not everything about it, has his focus realigned. It is here in chapter 8, though, in verse 1, that chapter 1 and verse 8 gets its fulfillment. I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the principle in Acts 1-8 is I want you to do it all at the same time. How do you do that? And the answer is everybody tells their part within the plan that God's established. Here's what the Bible says in Saul was consenting unto his death. His death here is Stephen's death at the end of chapter 7. And at that time, there, were great, there was a great persecution against the church. Now, I want you to notice that. It's a very interesting context within the book of Acts. And the words of the Bible were very important. At this point, in God's mind and in, in reality, there is only one church, only one local assembly that seems to be meeting. They might have been pod people meeting from house to house. I don't know how 25,000 would fit in one person's house. They might have been in little pods, but they were still collectively just one church in Jerusalem. The Bible goes on and says this, And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of, now read them for me, Judea and Samaria, except who? Oh, man, pastor didn't come with us. <laughs> How are we going to do this if pastor's not there? I mean, I don't know if I can go soul winning unless pastor's there. I don't know if it's important if pastor can't do it. They were scattered abroad except who? The pastors. How are we going to survive if the pastor didn't come with us? And God is saying you are responsible for you. Individual soul liberty responsibility of each of us, the individual priesthood, I should say, of the believer. The Bible says in verse 2, And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and, <clears throat> and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. In other words, Saul was the enemy. Notice verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, if you'll turn over to chapter 9, interluding or in between these passages in chapter 9, another year or so passes. In the process of that, we read two stories, and that is that Philip goes to Samaria, and in Samaria he begins to preach, and there's opposition, uh, demonic opposition to the preaching of the gospel, and Peter ultimately comes up to Samaria and intervenes for them, and Philip is caught away at the end of chapter 8, and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the way back from Jerusalem down to Ethiopia. If I could show you on a map, and we won't take the time tonight, that is a transport of about a hundred to 120 miles. I have no idea what that was like for Philip to leave Samaria and end up where the Ethiopian would be going down from Jerusalem back towards Africa and meet him there and explain the way of God to him. Explain to him Isaiah 53. When we come to chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul at the beginning of chapter 9. It's a wonderful story of his conversion. But one of the chief things that we can take away from Saul getting saved is that the chief enemy of the early church has been annihilated, at least in human terms. And so we come down then to verse number 30. The Bible says this, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea. They knew that Paul had been converted. Paul had presented himself. The Bible says that they brought him to Caesarea and they sent him forth to his hometown Tarsus. Now, here's the verse that I want you to pay attention to, verse 31. 
then had the, read that next word for me. Hmm. Hmm. Now, I will tell you, the only D I ever got in my life was in English grammar. It's the only D I ever earned in all of my scholastic work. And it was an earned D, I will tell you that. But I do know that in the nouns, there is a difference between the singular form and the plural form. And some of you that are writers and some of you that are good writers are smiling at me because you know this as well. The rest of you are like, well, I guess so, Kyle. That seems to make sense. What God is saying here is that that church that was gathered together, that God had built, said, I want you to be involved in a plan that I have that will reach the whole world. So go reach the whole world. And he sends them all out to do this work. Now, I have not yet prayed to open in, in, in the service, so I should get back to my notes and get back to the preaching. I will pray, and then we'll dive into the actual message for this evening. Father, help us now as we turn our hearts to the Word of God, as we turn our hearts to what we are to be about. I have no doubt that even in our church family, there are men, young and old, who can do the same kind of work that Brother Russ is engaged in. Can do the same kind of work that each of our missionaries has chosen to do. What the pastor of this place has chosen to do. To give themselves wholly to vocational ministry. But God, you want every member to be ministering your word everywhere they go. Help us tonight to see this and help us to see how we can commit and participate in the sharing of the responsibility in getting the gospel all around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From Christ's ascension to A.D. 90, the church went from being a small band of 120 believers to an innumerable host believing the good news that God, Jesus Christ, had come to earth to redeem and to rescue mankind from our sin and the sting of death. That is the hope that we have. Now, if you can't get excited even on a sleepy Sunday evening about the fact that you have hope and victory over the sting of death, that you have eternal life and that you're in a relationship with God, then you have a problem. But I would say that all of us understand the value and the worth of what God has given to us. This early group that we began to read about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, by the time we come to Acts 17, the Bible says this, the religious Jews in Thessalonica actually say this, these are they that have turned the world upside down. Did you know that's what your call is to to change the way the world views God and views themselves. You have to turn it upside down. Because mankind sees themselves as the most important, and what God wants you to do is to see Him as the most important. He's the Creator. So when we read chapter 1 and verse 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and when we read chapter 9 and verse 31, they tell us that when Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem began to spread out due to persecution, that they went everywhere preaching 
heralding, proclaiming, and teaching the gospel. The region this church ended up in was at the very end of the Roman highway system. Most, if not all of them, became a church at Antioch. Oh, they spread across to Damascus, and and they went to Joppa, and they made it to Samaria, and some went to Tarsus, and others even made their way all the way to the city of Rome. But most of them, the first missionary-minded church, ended up in the place called Antioch. That's where Paul and Barnabas launched from. When they start their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, they go out from Antioch. They come back to Antioch. Then they launch again from Antioch and they come back to Antioch, which is in Syria. All these individuals knew to do, quite honestly, all they knew was to travel and to tell. That's all they knew. Well, I just wish I had better education. You don't need any better education. I just wish I had a more complete Bible. You have the complete Word of God. I wish I had a better pastor. I can't help you out with that. The point is, you've got everything you need. You just need to travel and tell. The first missionary endeavor is no different than our present missionary endeavor. Go to them and give to them. Normal Christians going and telling everyone what they believed and how their faith in Jesus Christ has changed their lives. This, my friends, is the secret and the simplicity in spreading the gospel message. God's plan for all begins in your outlines with a commission. We all know this. Likely, if you've been in church for any length of time, you have heard the Great Commission preached to you. Tonight I'm not going to preach the commission other than to mention that this is our foundation. The word commission means the authority to perform a given task or responsibility. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, and I'm going to read these verses, and when we come to certain passages in these verses, you're going to notice, by the way, in each of them, five times, four Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts, you're going to find five times that Jesus Christ, as He's speaking, is giving to us an authoritative task, a commissioning to do something. And I've bolded some of the words, because what we're going to do when we finish reading all five of them In your notes, I've kind of cobbled together in blue. Uh, Do you all have notes tonight? Glorious. Three of you do. Hallelujah. You five, ten can follow along. The rest of you can think with suspense. What does he mean? And you can read it later with me, okay, Uh, as you go throughout the week. They're out by the door. If anybody wants to go get them, you're welcome to. But let's not disrupt or distract. The Bible says this, and and I'm going to put them in bold. In in verse 16, he says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, notice what it says. They worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, here's the commission. All power is given unto me. Is that a true statement? We look in the Bible and we look at the word power and we realize that there's two words generally that are defined for us as power. Exousia, meaning executive authority, and dunamis, or explosive enabling power. These are the two types of power. And what Jesus says is all executive authority is given to me. In heaven and in earth. Well, how does he have all executive authority in heaven and earth? Because he died sinlessly for us. 
Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, in every possible way, in every circumstance, in every situation. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So be it. We picked up the notable words in that passage then. They worshipped Him. Jesus says, all power is given to me. From that, He said, go ye. He said, teach. He said, baptize. He said, teach them then to observe. And then promised that He would go with us every step of the way. Here's what He says in the Gospel of Mark. By the way, each of these in the Gospels comes at the very end of the Gospels. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, they shall lay hands on the sick, they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and did what? Preached everywhere. And the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So be it. Here's what he says in the Gospel of John, the third Gospel. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed. That word breathe there is the same idea of what we find in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where God breathed into the nostrils of Adam living, a living soul. It's the very same word. He breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Again, the focus is peace be unto you. May I say to you, when you follow God's plan, you will live in peace. That's the point of it. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 45 we find the fourth giving of the, of the Great Commission. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved, or was required of Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations. Beginning where? At Jerusalem. Then he goes and says, And ye are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Dr. Luke, who wrote that passage, the third gospel, gives us also another treatise to Theophilus in the book of Acts. He is the writer of the book of Acts. Here's what he says there. We read it tonight. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. In other words, let God set the plan. You relax in the process, which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, what I've highlighted for us this evening are not the most important parts, but they are the formative parts for what we do as a church in the gospel ministry. It's going to help us then to build the statement that if you have notes tonight, you can follow along with. 
It is a comprehensive and commissionable statement so that we can understand what we, the New Testament church, are actually commissioned to do. Here is a combining, if you will, of these texts. This is what we need to understand. We are worshipers and witnesses of Christ. What is it that we worship and witness about Christ? Well, his volitional death, his vicarious uh, atonement, and his victorious resurrection. As worshipers, I put in your outlines, we have peace. That's the great thing about worship is that it brings peace. It settles the heart. Those who live in fear are never living in faith. And if you're not living or operating in this life in faith, then you will never truly worship God as you ought to. As Russ mentioned this morning, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So as worshipers, we have peace. As witnesses, which brings us to the task tonight, we have power. Peace enables us to endure hardship. Power endues us for the work. In other words, it it gives us the ability and the motivation. When he says you are endued with power, you will not just have the ability to do it. You'll have the proper motivation to go and do the work. What is that work that we are endued to do? That work is to herald, that is to teach or preach God's salvation. We are to encourage obedience, that is baptism, believer's baptism. And we are to instruct for change, that is, he says, teaching them to observe. This enabled worship and this endued work starts first at home. Jerusalem. Every time Jesus in the Great Commission, he always says, start at Jerusalem. Does that mean we as a church need to say, well, we don't need to tell anybody in Georgetown about Jesus until we first all travel to Jerusalem and tell them about Jesus? No. What he's saying is start where you are. Start right where you find yourself. Can I suggest to you that in the commission, you have a Jerusalem that is even slightly different than mine unless you live in my house? I have neighbors that you don't have. I have people in the line of work that I do that I rub shoulders with within the community that you don't. But guess what? You have far more people in the vocation God has called you to. Your Jerusalem is probably filled with more unbelievers than mine is. Then, of course, we have our city. We have our local region, the Bluegrass region, central Kentucky. I finish by saying in your notes there, And it flows out to all nations, even the furthest reaches of the earth. And I thought, boy, there couldn't have been a better message preached this morning to explain that point. Our mission, then, and commission is not to feed people. I know that I will step on a lot of toes when I say that. Well, pastor, there need to be people fed. Yes, I I have no doubt that there need to be people fed. But did Jesus feed every person that was in his Jerusalem when he was on this earth? And the answer is no, but he did present himself a sacrifice to all. He did offer them salvation. That doesn't mean that you should not engage in the process of helping your fellow man or your fellow woman. You should find ways to involve yourself in a positive way within the community. But that is not the mission or commission of the local church. Our commission does not task us with clothing people. 
Our commission does not demand that we house or build a better society for them. That's where many good-minded, even good-hearted people go wrong. They divert from what the principal passage is. The local church is to go out and plant what? More churches. The one church made more churches. That's what we're supposed to be about. You say, well, that sounds very boring. Can I tell you it's the most exciting thing in the world? Try planting a church in China. Good luck. If you walk in and sashay into the government office and say, I'm here to plant a church, they will say, get back on the plane and go back to the country you came from. Yeeks. But it's still our responsibility as a church to make more churches. The great commission given by Christ, the head of his church, to his church, is that we engage in preaching and teaching to lost sinners about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ everywhere that we are and everywhere that we go. That's what we're supposed to do. God's plan for all of us begins with a commission, and now we know it. But it also comes, secondly, with a challenge. Boy, that sure sounds easy, doesn't it? (laughs) There's the challenge. We recently at our home, we, we, for the boys, since they were old enough to comprehend, we read before we go to bed. So when the night is getting long, we will read and then we will pray and we'll talk at the house about what was great about the day. I'll tell you, on nights that there's really good football games on, I am very glad for the pause feature on TV nowadays, right? Because I want to go watch... But even uh, last night, we read, and then we finish watching our cats lose. But the point is, as you go through life, or we've chosen to go through life, we've chosen to read stories. Some of those stories are about, uh, uh, you know, we've read through all of the Chronicles of Narnia. We've read through all of the Lord of the Ring books. Sometimes when they're really young, Dad has to edit out the ale and the beer that they drink. But, but the point is, is that we've tried to read it. Well, recently we read Through Gates of Splendor. How many have read that book? Oh, put your hands up real high. If you've read that book, that's fantastic. Seven of us. Can I make a suggestion tonight? Go home. Get on your Amazon. I'm not supporting them, nor am I endorsing them, but get on your favorite book ordering site and order an actual copy of Through Gates of Splendor. My boys and I knew what happened to Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and... Luke, I can't remember the rest of their names, like Roger and Jim and all the others, right? All those guys. But uh, we knew what happened to him. In fact, Nate, our middle son, is named after Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. His name is Nate Elliott because we love the story of them giving their lives without any thought of what it might cost them. But can I tell you, those men and all of their spouses are now dead. This really is what the challenge is, and I put this in your notes to a degree. Every missionary that we quote, every work that has ever been done that we can say, man, that was a great work that was done, every story that we might be able to give, if those people have gone on to glory, then their challenge is done. Their race is run. Yet the responsibility to evangelize the world is left to the living. To us, 
And that's what we often mistake as believers. We just think, well, somebody will do it. And God says, yes, but you're part of the plan. The plan is a plan for all. Our generation, I think this is what I put in your notes, our generation of believers is that first generation of believers. When you read Acts 1 and you find after the ascension of Jesus Christ that they go to pray in the upper room and that they try to figure out who the next apostle should be to replace Judas Iscariot and then the power falls upon them, that church is us. Now, I realize it's not actually us, but it is us in the very real sense that they were the only vehicles through which the gospel was carried out. And you and I are as well. The lost member of Hamas is not going around telling people about Jesus Christ. You know him. Why aren't we busy about the work of sharing where we are, what we know? Every generation alive is no different than that first generation of believers. We are challenged by God to demonstrate our love for Him and our love for others by sharing the good news with those who don't know Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? The world does not need a better political movement. They need Jesus. That's it. And as a church, we have to understand that. This is our challenge to undertake. Reach the whole world for Jesus Christ. Can I submit to you that as a pastor, I actually operate as if this is only our church's responsibility. We go, pastor, clearly there's other good churches out there. Clearly there are. But if every church assumes somebody else is going to do the work, then who's going to actually get the work done? And the answer is nobody. Every church is to operate as if everything depends upon them because, in fact, in your area and in our home, it does. Thank goodness we're not alone. But neither are we exempt from being engaged just because someone else has taken up their responsibility. Let me give you a couple understandable realities tonight. I won't have you raise your hand, but... In your heart, you probably know which one you fall into. If not, you're probably in the first one I'm going to mention. Those who are in their 60s, their 70s, and 80s are not likely to come down front to the altar on a Sunday morning and say, Pastor, God's called me to Ecuador. I mean, you might. I'll say, God bless you. But that generation is likely not going to come down and say, God's called me to, and say they're going to go to a mission field. So what is your responsibility within the church? Well, certainly your responsibility within the church is to pray. Your responsibility within the church is to share and to instruct or to teach. Your responsibility within the church is to give. Those in their 30s, their 40s, and their 50s are still parenting children who are in their preteen, teenage years, or just leaving the nest years. That generation and that group should give, but that group should also consider going. But most of all, parents, what you can do is encourage your children that vocational ministry work, and in particular the gospel-spreading work of pastoring or being a missionary, is both commendable and desirable. Can I tell you, as a pastor, I recognize there's a lot of deadbeats that hold the title pastor. I understand that. 
It's unfortunate. But a true New Testament missionary evangelist or pastor, a person that truly by the New Testament principles fulfill that, is a noble thing and it's a noble calling. It's not better than being a worker at Toyota or better than being a doctor or better than being an executive in a business or better than being someone that does manual labor. It's not better, but it is a noble thing. Maybe it's high time some of us as parents in the time of devotion said to our kids, have you ever thought about God calling you into full-time ministry or work? Those who are in their 20s, and in their teens, and most of them are out this, this evening, ought to be open to going. America used to send two missionaries for every one that came home. That is until the mid to late 1990s. Now there's six missionaries who are American missionaries who've gone to share the gospel overseas who are coming home for every one that goes. Stop and think about that. Who's going to replace them? Well, pastor, we can't have everybody leave our church. Listen, I grew up in a church where everybody left the church, but not for the wrong reason. There were 90 of us who God led to go be missionaries or pastors or work on church staff, either there at that church or some other church. I have no doubt that those 90 men of one of which I am one of them could have benefited the church by staying there, but they benefited the cause of Christ by going somewhere else and obeying God, I being one of them. I'm simply saying, as parents, we should be careful not to discourage or to dissuade them from listening to the Spirit's call. I was reading in my devotion in Bible time at the beginning of Samuel. I'm going through in that passage right now. And when God calls Samuel, Samuel, our responsibility is, here am I, Lord. I think this is the wonderful symmetry within a church. Our older generation involved in praying and giving and keeping alive the heartbeat of world evangelism so that the middle generations can engage and instruct and inspire the younger generations who themselves can even pray and prepare to go. That is the health of the church. Oh, the lifeblood of the church are new converts. But the health of the church, the white blood cells, if you will, that fight off the infection of, and the disease of laziness and complacency, that is the idea of an older generation who's encouraging a middle generation, who's encouraging a younger generation, who in doing what is right, encourage ultimately the older generation. There's a great symmetry to it. Every generation involved in their ways of giving, of going, and of genuinely praying. God's plan begins with a commission. It comes with a challenge. Third, in your notes there, it carries a commitment. Tonight, I'm setting before you a reminder of our commitment to giving. We do not give to a missions fund and send it off to a central office. That is the nature of being an autonomous New Testament Baptist church. We are independent. We don't send it off to a central office and say... Well, my job's done. No, we take on missionaries that we commit to supporting. In fact, I think we have a couple slides on this. These are our missionaries, if you don't know them. And what I've done underneath their name is I've put there the annual support that we give to them. I know it's a wee bit small, but if you strain at a gnat, you might be able to see it. 
For the Blaine's family, $3,300 annually. Damascus is $3,900 annually. The Flicks, $1,500. And by the way, the reason each of these names have different amounts is because as they've been with our church for any length of time, we believe in rewarding faithfulness in a steward. And so when they begin, they get $125 a month, which is $1,500 a year. And when they continue, or as they continue with us, after five years, they move up $75 to $200 a month. And after another five years, they move up to $275. And if they have missionaries that work under them, or national pastors who work under them on the foreign field, we give them money for those national pastors. In other words, we take the process of church planting very seriously around here. And so on the slides go. You can go to the next one. You can see each of them. You can go to the next one. You say, Pastor, there's some names that are left out there. Yeah, because they're for our consumption, but for the Internet purposes, their countries are closed countries. We don't put their countries there. The last one is one that we are praying about. How do we continue to help Nilza de Carvalho? Her husband died of COVID there in Cape Verde about a year and a half ago now. And Nielsa has determined to stay on the field. And so if, they, if she is there doing the work of witnessing and sharing Christ and encouraging and building up that church, we're going to keep supporting her until Ms. Nielsa and her daughter and son determine that it's time for her to come back. And if, they, if she comes back, we will support her for six months beyond her determined time to come back so that she can transition back to living here in the U.S. without any expense to her, or at least as nominal as we can make it. Our commitment, I think the last slide, our support of these 23 families ultimately comes to $60,550 above our general fund giving. You say, well, man, if we just put that in the general fund, it'd be a lot easier. This makes us make a commitment to it. It's real. Well, I gave my tithe. Isn't that enough? We could have a long debate if we wanted to, if the tithe is even a New Testament thing. A lot of people that think it's not. The point is, is that giving by grace is always the best biblical model. Giving graciously back to the Lord as He's given to you. Now let me give you a couple thoughts on this. We have 120 families who are members or regular attenders here. Doesn't that just want to blow your mind for a second? Like, wow, really? Well, I mean, on a Sunday morning like today where everybody was in here and it gets hot. It's kind of hot in here tonight, don't you think? Yeah. Is anybody else hot? <laughs> Some of you that are still awake are saying it. Uh, Scott, could you hunt up Pam and see if she can change the air conditioners? I could, but it would be a huge distraction, and she can do it on her phone. She's the brains of the outfit. We'll let her do that. It felt a little hot to me, or sticky, I think, is the word that keeps going in my mind. We have 120 families. Can I tell you something? If 120 families give $10 a week, that ensures that every single one of those families and the work that we've committed to would get done. Ten bucks a week. $520 a year from every family. And some of the younger families or some of the families that may have disabilities or inability to be able to pay are like, man, $520, that's a lot of money. That's right. But there's others of us that go, well, it's not that much money. I mean, I spend more than $520 a month on YouTube TV to watch eight football games that usually are losses. Are you telling me to cut out TV? No, I'm saying maybe five less coffees a month. Maybe skip going out to eat once a week. If you've got a family of five like us, it's nearly 80 bucks if we want to go out to a halfway decent restaurant and eat. Because i got a teenager that eats like a horse. It's expensive. And they did away with all those all-you-can-eat buffets. 
Imagine if each family gave $20 a week. Can I, can I just blow your mind for a second? If every family in our church gave $20 a week, I'm not saying you should. Don't, don't take that as a number. I'm just throwing an idea out. Do you know we could take on 30 more missionary families? <laughs> what? Yeah. By the way, the money doesn't come to us. Every penny. You can look in the accounting. All of our books are open. Every penny that comes to the mission fund, it doesn't take care of keeping the lights on. It doesn't pay any pastor's salary. It doesn't even go under the table for this project or that. It only goes to missions because by the IRS's law, and I don't know what churches that are dishonest do, but by the IRS's, if you designate it for missions, it has to go to that. And we, in integrity, would always give it to that. Think of this. If we got serious about it, we'd start planning more work missions trips, more teen trips to go overseas. We would find young people who are eager to say, yes, I have but one life, but I want to give that life to serving Jesus. If we can find the focus to always be mindful of our missionaries, and I do think we do a very good job of it. All I'm doing tonight is trying to re-encourage those that may have been absent in it or who have been unable to do it. I simply remind you that Christianity is itself a commitment, one that many a Christian is none too eager to make. That's the sad reality. God's plan begins with a commission. It comes with a challenge. It carries a commitment, but finally it all rests on a choice. You know, these people that we read in the beginning that went out under persecution. They lost everything. Except for what they could carry on their backs, they had nothing. In fact, if you go to the New Testament letters, especially in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Macedonian believers and then to the Corinthians about the Macedonian believers and commending the Macedonians for giving to the poverty-stricken Jerusalem church because they were suffering such great persecution. In other words, this church had every reason to say, man, I am quitting. That's it. I've had enough. But they didn't. Our choice today is simple. To obey by engaging in spreading the gospel or to disobey due to apathy, fear, or just plain old disinterest. The earliest church, as I mentioned at Jerusalem, could have easily said, Jesus cost me everything. It's not worth it. I'm glad they didn't go around telling people that. Instead, those earliest Christians, our forefathers in the faith, to be honest, went around saying something like this, Jesus gave everything. Most importantly to me, eternal life. Who cares what my old life was? I want everyone to know about the new life that I got. That literally is the sum of our message. I'm convinced that God wants to do unbelievably great things for His kingdom through bluegrass. He doesn't continually draw people here just because we're such a likable lot. I'm glad we are. We seem like a very happy fellowship and we always should be. But it's because there are determined people here, not just the pastor, but there are determined people across leadership. There's determined people in all of the laymanship of this place that say, we're really serious about this God thing. 
We're really serious about this salvation that we've received. That's what convinces me day by day as the church continually grows against sometimes even logical reason. God wants to do something great, but He won't so long as we're hesitant. I look at the evidence in our own midst. The number of young people, that is children and teens, whose lives are being shaped by the preaching and teaching and influence of fellowship here. Do you know how many it is now? Anybody want to take a guess? From the littlest babies all the way up to the teenagers that are about to graduate. Anybody have an idea on the number? Just somebody throw one out. One four. Thanks, Mike. Now you've made it disappointing. It's about 80. <laughs> but it's getting close to 140. Right? That was a dangerous thing for me, right? That's the trap all the time. 10,000? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember when there was eight. I've been here that long. Now it's in the tune of 80. Many of them are your kids. God doesn't bring life and new life in Jesus Christ to families like yours, just so you can sit, soak, and sour in it. It's so that you can find ways to serve. I, I am certainly glad, and, and I'm very careful. Every time I preach, I'm very careful never to puff up man or to puff up my mom and dad. But my parents, my whole life, made God, church, and missions very important to my sister and I. And now as a pastor and as an older man looking back on that, I realize and reflect on the fact it's why my sister, even though I was a little wild in my late teens and early 20s, my sister and I are still being used by God. I am, it's not lost on me that all of the credibility in Christ that I have is not due to me alone. It's the influence of my parents on me and the direction that they pointed us in. And I look at families in our church and I thank God for the influence you are having on your children. Keep it up. But that is more proof to me that God wants to do great things through us. Those kids, those 80 plus kids, are the next generation of God's kingdom on this earth. However long it's going to be. Doesn't seem like it's long with everything going on in Israel. The homes that are yielded to living godly and for Christ's glory are growing daily in this place. What can our 120 homes, like those 120 early believers, do for Jesus in central Kentucky? How can we then ultimately go to the uttermost and shape the world? Can we turn the world upside down for Jesus? I believe yes. You say, well, it seems like a small crowd to preach that to. You should have preached it this morning. No, 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 listen. We needed to hear Russ's preaching this morning. This congregation, this group, the core that makes the planet rotate, we need to hear this message. Because once we get real serious about it, anybody that walks through the door will know what we're all about. They won't doubt it for one second. God wants all of us to be part of His divine plan. It is a plan for all that we share the good news of Jesus Christ. So will you. Father, help us this evening as we close our thoughts. I hope people don't leave the message tonight.